welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. This is episode eight, How to Think About Change. It features the Arendt Center's founder and director, Roger Berkowitz, in a Zoom conversation with both Chiara Ricciadone, a political thinker, and the Clemens von Klemperer postdoctoral fellow at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College, and with Micah White, activist, co-creator of Occupy Wall Street, and author of The End of Protest. Ricciadone and White are married and co-founders of the Activist Graduate School. Hello, my name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center. And for today's edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, I'm thrilled to be with Chiara Ricciadoni and Micah White. Chiara is the Clemens von Klemperer postdoctoral fellow at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. And Michael White is a lifelong activist, uh, co-creator of Occupy Wall Street, and author of the book, The End of Protest. And both Kiara and Micah are the founders and heads of the Activist Graduate School. Welcome, Kiara and Micah. Thank you. Thanks, it's great Roger. to be here. Yeah. So first of all, since we're um, all isolating and sheltering in place during this coronavirus outbreak, just tell us a little bit about where you guys are and how you're spending your days and maybe what you've been reading or, or trying to think or write about over the last month of the coronavirus. Well, we live together in Kingston, New York with our two kids. So we tend to split up the day. And I've been, I was teaching with the Bard Prison Initiative uh, at an Eastern Correctional Facility and all those classes are canceled. So I find myself missing the classroom. And so I signed up for a Latin class. Um, I'm partly a classicist as well as a philosopher. Uh, so the Latin takes a good deal of my time. And then reading snatches, reading uh, sci-fi, reading a little bit of Plato. I kind of read what calls to me in little bits. I think my kind of background on this whole issue is I've been obsessively studying coronavirus since late January when I got back from the World Economic Forum in Davos. And like on the way back is when I kind of like got obsessed with it and kind of realized at that point that my career of activism was going to come to an end if, if countries adopted the lockdown style. So what I'm reading is what I, I've honed it down a lot, but a ton of research into coronavirus, news about coronavirus, especially news articles coming out of China, because those tend to be the ones that have the information that's fresh. And then six days later, you see it in the mainstream press in America sometimes. But at this point, I feel like I'm slowing down. I'm going into a turn to go into a different reality. I think just so much news is actually like a downer now. So I'm just watching it. I'm watching it and trying to snip and, you know, jump in every couple of days on it. I think it's so interesting because I think so many of us, when this started, immediately started basically acquiring our little doctorates in epidemiology or whatever. Yeah. And I think there is a kind of feeling at this point that there are many of us that we've been overloaded. But you said something, Micah, uh, that was very interesting, which is that, uh, you were flying back from Davos and you were like, oh my God, this could end protest. You've already written a book called The End of Protest. Tell me a little bit more about how you're thinking about that. How is the coronavirus even more the end of protest than what you would already call the end of protest? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is like that old, old world of you know 2019 is like, I was invited to Davos and I went to Davos to World Economic Forum to really talk about how activists and elites needed to work together in order to pull off an unprecedented climate mobilization. 
But then when I was in Davos, there was this contingent from Tianjin, China, because that's where the World Economic Forum has one of their annual gatherings that's now been canceled, I think. And I remember standing there Googling on my phone, like, oh my God, how far is Wuhan from Tianjin? And that's what kind of like first sensitized me is that I, like just the being in an international place, seeing how easy it was to just be with someone from a potentially contaminated zone. And then when I started to, on the flight back, really pay attention to the leaked videos coming out of China, and I saw in China the lockdown strategy that's now being used. Like in China, they actually, in Wuhan, they barricaded the streets and locked people in their houses and apartments, which we didn't understand why would they do that. But now it's so obvious they did it because some people will not stay in their homes, no matter what you tell them, unless you lock them in their house, even if they know they're infected. And so I did just see that the nature of the virus was such that the only way to stop it or slow it was to prevent people from gathering in space. And that's the core tactic of activism. And so that was just like, I already had been saying we shouldn't be marching, but to see that we would legally be prohibited from marching, like right now it's illegal in New York state to organize a march of five people or more, you know, I think it's more than three people or some ridiculousness. So I just kind of like, you know, one thing that's nice also like talking to Kiara is I think that she was like, also could see that. So she didn't, try to prevent me. She's like, yeah, that's probably probably true. You know what I mean? So we're able to run with that realization, which is very helpful because I think I've been paying attention, Kara and I have been paying attention since way before other people even thought it could be a possibility. Seriously, like- Just back up a second. So why do you think that protests marching are no longer the right strategy for protest? I think right now there is like a basically- it's a risk of contagion. But be, I'm saying before, oh, you said that. that even before this, you were, you were saying that, which you oh, are you I in think, your book. But yeah. why is protest uh, increasingly less effective? I think what I was arguing before is that it had something to do with A, that the tactic and strategy was broken. And I think that B, the other thing that was kind of like where my thinking was going on the way to Davos was just that, that the challenges we face as humans at this time require a kind of working together, not an adversarial relationship. Because, you know, back then we were obsessed with climate change. And if you think about how much mobilization would be necessary to plant like one trillion trees, which is what they were talking about, you would need the support of activists plus governments. And so like, I think part of it at first, it started with a basically a feeling that's not effective. And I think then it became a feeling that like, it also wasn't what wasn't the best use of the mobilization capacity of activists, really. And so this is why also Coronavirus is really hard, because it's like, well, what is the mobilization capacity of activists in Coronavirus? And like, what do we do? And like, what's our purpose? I think activism is having an existential crisis in terms of like, what is our purpose, you know, in this time, along with all of humanity, Humanists are also having an existential crisis. Such creativity comes out of times of crisis. So part of Micah's critique, I think, about activism in the earlier times was it follows a script. It's the same old script of the protesters do this and the police do this and nothing changes. What's exciting, even amidst all this suffering and grief and pain, is that it feels like people are starting to look for new storylines and that those storylines might even start to be a story that we can tell as a global humanity, that a global we might start to emerge from this because we are, for the first time, experiencing really similar challenges and, and looking for other, to other countries for ideas and cooperation and, and new kinds of stories are going to be told. And there's an immensely interesting kind of competition right now about are we in a progressive narrative where after the crisis there's a change and then we see universal basic income and universal health care, or are we in a declensionist narrative in which we're going to enter a second dark ages. And then there's a strong contingent that's also trying to say, no, this is just a pause or kind of a temporary rupture. And then we're all going to go back to normal. Um, And that's, to me, the most terrifying narrative of all, um, because it would mean that we have completely lost our ability to learn from and change in response to enormous challenges. 
And I, so I find that a terrifying narrative. Say a little bit more about that, Kiara. I mean, I think obviously when you listen to the president or, or even the governor in New York, I think so much of what people are saying is we have to go back to normal. We have to reopen things. We have to get things back. And I think that's where so much of the energy is focused right now. What do you have in mind when you say that's terrifying and what would be an alternative? Normal was a lie. Normal was a cruel and unsustainable lie. And every day we had to go about our business and commute and buy avocados and buy bananas and pretend like this wasn't completely destroying the earth and other people, you know, that, that, uh, my comfortable lifestyle wasn't coming at the direct costs to other people. I remember feeling as, you know, the tension was ratcheting up and uh, Mike and I were watching the news and being like, when is it going to hit here? When is it going to hit here? It's already here, but we don't have the tests. We don't know. Um, and just feeling like there would be such a relief when the normal was exposed for the lie that it was um, and that we could embrace and recognize collectively the fact that we're in crisis. And that being kind of the first step to being able to sort out what are the changes that need to happen. And I, I don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea what the future is going to hold. I imagine it will be some, some things better, some things worse, <laughs> some kind of, uh, some things will kind of stay the same. It's a reconfiguration of that some of the elements may be the same, but what's important is that the relationships among them and among us are going to be really deeply reconfigured, even our relationships with ourselves. I mean, it, it does strike me that this is a moment, right? Where, People are dying in refrigerator and, and being put bodies are put in refrigerated trucks and and people who aren't dying are either at home alone or with their families as you guys are. And people have time. People have time to look in the mirror or stare into the walls or look out the window. They have time to read. One might think they have time to think. And it does strike me that if if your hope is to change things, right? This would be one of those times where people who are alone at home, stuck, have the time to begin to think and talk to each other through, we have this incredible internet thing, and come up with new ideas. What should we be fighting for? I mean, Micah said earlier, the environment, and you mentioned that as well, Kiara. Is that the issue and how and, and where do things go from here? Are you seeing people in the activist community doing that? Is there a sense that this is an opportunity to reorient or, as you said, come up with a global narratives or other narratives? Or is there more just people are sitting home alone, shell-shocked, not knowing what to do? You guys yeah. are both part of this narrative. I'm wondering, this community, how is it? What's going on? At first, I think before the lockdowns, when I thought a lockdown was going to happen and no one around really thought that, I believed that once lockdowns happened, then people would kind of like catch up to me in their understanding of what was going on or see things more similar to how I was seeing them. But instead, what I've seen is that the delusion just keeps going and going. So the delusion before the lockdowns was there is going to be no lockdown. I'm going to keep sending my kid to, kid to school until the very last minute. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Oh, crap. It's lockdown. Okay, we're going to have a lockdown party now because young people don't get sick. So let's have a big party. Oh, crap. The host of the party got sick. I'm sick. Oh, no. Now we're in the house. Now we're in lockdown. And the delusion continues. Okay, we're going to open up in May. Uh, maybe it's July, maybe whatever. It's going to come back. We're going to go back. There's going to be a vaccine, even though we lack the technology. There's no existing technology to create a vaccine for this virus, let alone the quantity needed for humanity. But that's okay. We'll do it in record time. We'll do it in 18 months. What's the average time for a vaccine? Five years. We'll do it in 18 months. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, we know how this vaccine, this thing, we don't need to ask. We do need math. What I'm saying is the delusion continues endlessly to a suicidal degree among humanity. So I, I see that as very dangerous. I, and I think that 
or in a worse position. So what most people are doing, we know from internet statistics is porn, they're playing games, they're eating a lot and they're smoking weed. That's what most people are doing. You know, We know this data, we know this data. That's fine, that's fine, they're doing that. They should do what they need to do. But what I see happening is that this virus is not going away. This virus is gonna stay here. There's not gonna be a vaccine. You know, you're part of an activist community. Are people reaching out and planning during this community or is it we're all watching porn and, and whatever you said, smoking weed and eating whatever. Um, I mean, is there a sense that this is a time to, to talk to each other and plan or is it more people are just, you know, watching Netflix if we can be the, do the PG version of it? Yeah. Um, look, what I would say is that most people are not, still not reacting to the virus in the way that the virus should be reacted to. Most people are still continuing and persisting to think that this is something that they have seen and known and it's okay. It's kind of, they know, they know they shouldn't say that it's just a flu, but they act as if it's just a flu. And so that continues into the activist community. The majority of the activist community is doubling down on ideas of mutual aid. Oh, we're going to deliver food. We're going to do these things. And it's like, okay, you do realize that people wearing full protective gear in hospitals, thousands of them have been infected with coronavirus. Yet you, the activist community, feel that you can put your homemade mask on and go deliver food to people. It's very noble, but it has to do with what I'm saying is you have to have an appreciation for the virus and how long this is going to last. So the most activists that I see, I mean, there's rumors of a kind of right-wing accelerationist like narrative or whatever, but the activism that I see, the community that I see is, is more like trying to do mutual aid community organizing, which is very noble, but I see what I anticipate will just burn itself out because I don't think this virus is going away. I think that there's going to be multiple waves. I think we're going to be in lockdown for 18 months. I don't think there's going to be a vaccine. I do think it could mutate into a less virulent thing, but I do think that it could also mutate in the other direction like the Spanish flu did. So I think it's a big question as to what activism should be doing right now. And I think that it should be protecting itself as activists. Kiara, I know you've been thinking a lot about what questions we should be asking ourselves and how we should be rethinking what we're aiming for. How has the virus and this time allowed you to think about those questions or pushed you in a particular direction? Yeah, I think the main change I'm trying to think about is the way that everything has been turned inside out. There's a couple of different ways of thinking about that. One is in the personal sphere and one is in more of the political sphere. So politics and the domestic sphere have been traditionally divided and contrasted. Maybe one is modeled on the other or they depart from one another. But now I think we're seeing in a, a new way if politics is going to happen at all, it's going to happen from deep within the domestic. Um, the domestic that's been completely or traditionally very invisible is now becoming very visible as children and pets and relationships are on screen. And maybe people are around more to see all the work that goes into the maintenance of a household and into the emotional labor of that. Um, so those things becoming more visible and being flipped to the outside, I think is gonna lead to a transformation of whatever we end up doing for politics if we do such a thing. Um, I think it's also gonna uh, lead to a, in the best case scenario, a, a revaluation of values. We are often told that we should be questioning power or speaking truth to power. Um, I think this is a time in which we're seeing that the most powerful questions are sometimes the ones that you turn on yourself. Um, and being suspicious, as, as Mike is talking about, of the narratives that you tell yourself and of, am I applying old world thinking? What am I scared to think of? I've been finding it helpful to think about Amor Fati and that maybe, maybe we were made for this moment. Um, maybe I can be actually grateful for being alive during a time when so much is happening. That it's a privilege, even with all this suffering, to, to be here for this and try to understand it. Like, change is our teacher. 
um, the great philosophers have always grappled with how to think about change. And I think that's a huge question right now. Arendt thinks about it in terms of natality. Heraclitus thinks about it in terms of flux. Deleuze thinks about it in terms of the entity is the event. So how do we think about change? Like, how do we get a grip on this thing that's happening to us? And that's one of the questions that's really preoccupying me. I love that question, how to think about change. Um, and you've talked about two different realms, right? The private realm and, and the public realm. One thing that, I mean, this is sort of one of those private things, but I, you, you hear, at least in some of the, in New York City where I live, what a lot of people are talking about is, you know, suddenly they have to clean their bathrooms by themselves. And for many people, they haven't done this in many years. And as you said, it brings a kind of renewed focus on the domestic. I mean, we can also talk about people who, who used to do that, who no longer have jobs and, mm -hmm. and how it's impacting them. But the fact is that for many of us, we're spending a lot more time cleaning and cooking and doing stuff that we hadn't had to do as much. And then on the public realm, you know, you said everything needs to be questioned and we need to be suspicious of narratives. And I know, you know, one of the things that both you and Micah have been thinking about is democracies and, 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 how, and how we rethink or think about the effectiveness and, and the value of democracies. So I'm wondering on both those levels, thinking about it on those levels of how do we think about change? How are you guys thinking about change? You know, how does one do that? I love this question because I think that one of the ways that I really have been changing my, my own thinking leading up to like this whole time was understanding that I was fascinated by activism, but I was really even more fascinated by this question of social change and that activism was just a component of that. And so there's a whole aspect of my book that talks about, you know, the ways of understanding change. And two of them that I argue for are one is like a structural approach to change where there's certain things that happen that are not human that cause changes, social changes. And then there's also like divine intervention, these kind of things. And that's another kind of change. But I think the coronavirus is an example of like how something outside of humanity is causing tremendous changes. And it's very difficult to understand where that's going to go without fully understanding, well, what is this virus? And it's only, we've only known it for four months. So we really don't know. Like if you think about what kind of things people thought about AIDS and then what they think about AIDS 20 years later, you would understand that we know nothing about coronavirus right now. People, people believe, I read an article, I actually Googled this because I wanted to understand. I, I, I said, I Googled, what are some things that people thought about AIDS that we don't believe anymore? And I found this article just from four years ago saying that one of the core assumptions of AIDS research uh, that lasted for 16 years was finally disproved. <laughs> and this was one of the foundational beliefs in, in, in AIDS. So anyways, what I'm saying is that the, the virus is a social actor that's forcing social changes. And I think that part of what needs to happen is to understand now that there's, it used to be easy to kind of think that all change derived somehow from humans. But I think that in this moment, what's so fascinating is that is this third actor that we don't understand that's forcing us to do certain behaviors that we also don't understand and what the consequences of that are very unclear right now. But I, I think that we are never going back to that old world. I think that this, this virus is, it's like a, I think this virus, my personal thing is this virus is basically a social evolutionary force that's going to force humanity to change in a very painful but very important ways. Like for all we know, this could be the step towards um, being able to live on Mars, for example. Like our response to the coronavirus could teach us certain behaviors that allow us to survive in space, or it could allow us to do other things that have been outside of our grasp as humanity. And so that's that's kind of where, where I'm going. It's further decentering the role of humans in this time, and and which also I think further allows us to kind of like enjoy the private space. Like there's not much we can really do uh, right now, there might be something we can do in three months, but right now, the best thing we can do is 
stay home and, um, you know, and chill. I think there's a couple of the conversations I've had with people this week, at least academics or especially academics are very much worried about how this will maybe permanently change teaching. Kiara, I know you've been teaching in a prison and because they're not allowed the internet, you can no longer teach in a prison. Even if internet classes continue, you know, what kinds of people will not be allowed to be taught? Some people think this is great. We'll move teaching online. It'll be cheaper. It'll be better, be more efficient. And then there's a question of what can't be taught online. Decentralizing the role of humans, as you said, changing things. I mean, things will change. I think you're right. And I think a lot of people's reactions are, that's bad. You seem to be more positive about that. Yeah, I mean, I would say just like briefly, what I, the way I put it is like, the worst case scenario is true and it's a good thing. That's what I believe. I think the absolute worst case scenario with this virus is going to come true. No vaccine, pandemic. It's going to become endemic. It's going to be impossible to eradicate. But that's a good thing. It's going to lead to positive things. I think people overall, if we were honest with ourselves, I think many people are actually happier in lockdown. I mean, money is a big concern, okay? But let's say that money wasn't a concern because we forced them to do some sort of you know, universal basic income. Even the Pope's calling for it now, Bernie Sanders, Biden, whatever. In some ways, we can say that it's the worst, but it's also the best. <laughs> so that's what I would do. Rather than trying to, because I, otherwise I just see delusional fantasies. Like just realistically speaking, the, the best scenarios are so, so unlikely. I think one way that it's helpful to think about that is if you go back and look at what people said when the automobile was invented. Mike and I once taught a class called Technology and Social Change together, and I always remember this vignette from that class. There were all these articles about how it was going to be noisy and people would be fragmented and atomistic and it would be polluted and we would speed up and we wouldn't have time for each other anymore. And all those things came true. All, every single negative prediction about the automobile absolutely came true. And yet we were happy. You know, and, and, and we're happy again now that I haven't moved my car from except to turn it on and make sure it still works. I'm happy again at times. I can, I can access that. And that's the amazing thing about being human is that we have this extraordinary plasticity and ability to feel alive that is, can, can be worthwhile in itself. Strikes me as a really important insight that you're both making, which is that the internet and connectivity has been radically increasing over the last 20 years, 30 years, however it is. And yet it hasn't completely changed the way we do business or hang out with friends, right? We, we go to friend's house, we go to the pub, we jump on a plane and go to Davos. Or I, you know, I was supposed to be in Germany, Japan, Korea, and Hong Kong over the last month, all got canceled. <laughs> you know, and people have said, well, these are bad things for the environment. These are, you know, whatever, but we can't stop them. I hear some part of you guys saying, yeah, maybe these things will stop. We don't need to travel around the world. We don't need to hop on a plane to Davos. We can have a, a, a Zoom global meeting in Davos. Mm. You know, and then people me was like, it's just not the same. If you can't look people in the eyes, if you can't shake their hands, if you can't talk to them. And I hear you guys saying, you know, maybe, but things will get better. We'll come up with new ways to do it. And uh, this is how we think about change. This is how things change. I, I hear you saying that this could be one of those sort of real fulcrum moments in history. Absolutely. absolutely. No, it absolutely is. And I think that it's helpful to just embrace it. You know, like I think that one of the, this is, you know, a strange anecdote, but one of these one of kind of the core experiences for me is I, when I was younger, I went and I researched and read every book in the Binghamton University Library on the Holocaust. They could just go to that section of the library, you know? And I remember I came across this one person's insight where he basically said that, you know, he had heard a lot of rumors about the death camps and he chose to believe them. He chose to say, these, are, this, these rumors are probably true. 
And so that finally, when he did get taken to the death camp and he saw that they were entering a death camp, he had a split consciousness where he was like, okay, this is it. I'm entering the death camp. I've heard the rumors. This is true. And he survived. Whereas in front of him in line was someone who was like, oh my God, it's a death camp. The rumors were true. Freaks out and gets killed by a guard. And so I think that my coping mechanism since the beginning of this pandemic has just been to say, okay, what's the worst case scenario? Let's really understand this and let's accept it and embrace it. Because this seems to me that this virus is the disease X that everyone has feared. It seems to me that this virus has certain characteristics, such as its ability to be infectious during asymptomatic periods, its ability to hang in the air, its ability to reinfect people, its ability to mutate quickly. They've already said today that uh, they've detected a mutation in India that would render the vaccines that have been developed now um, futile. Um, it has all of these, you know, the researchers in Hong Kong called it a ninja. It's a ninja vac- a virus, they've said. So the virus itself is the worst case scenario pandemic that we've been fearing, and it has come true. So we will all stay in our homes for as long as possible, and other bad things are going to happen. People on our street are going to die. People in your building are going to die. People are going to die on the street just falling on the ground dead. Okay, fine. They're not going to be able to control it. Okay, fine. Yet great things can happen. (laughs) Still great things can happen. I think that this could be a necessary thing. We needed this. When I was on the way to Davos, I was just thinking about how can we get there to be less planes? You know, like the environmental consequences are, are tremendously positive. The pollution reduction, the airline travel. Um, so what I'm saying is that I don't think that people are going to survive if they persist with rejecting what is happening. And that's what I see. You know, like where our kids formerly went to nursery, she had the email being like, okay, we're not opening in May. And I'm just like, what kind of person sitting at home right now thinking that the schools are going to open in May. Nothing has changed fundamentally about the situation, people. We have no treatment, no cure, no vaccine. We stay in lockdown. It's going to be interesting to see, though, what the implications are. And humans are changing. This is is a traumatic experience psychologically for all of us and our children. And after this, people might not want to shake hands or might not want to be in rooms with other people. We don't know. It depends on how long this lasts. But I think that the best way to protect myself emotionally has been to just assume the worst case scenario. And each time it it's been fulfilling. I mean, it has been, it's tracking on course for the worst case scenario as far as I see. So, Well, I mean, although in, at least in the U.S., you know, a month ago, the models were showing 1.6 million dead. If we didn't do anything, then 100,000 to 250,000 dead if we, if we did something. Now they're saying that's probably going to be like 60,000 dead by August. So they've certainly, we haven't seen the worst case scenarios fulfilled. Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, you've mentioned some things which I think are right, some, but there's also this question of, can we get enough tests? Can we do contract tracing? I think there's some people who think that that might work. Who knows? Not by May, but maybe by June. Right. But I mean, we can't know these things. So I'm not interested yeah. so much from, from us to predict what's going to happen, but more to think about the kind of changes that might be welcomed uh, yeah. by some people, uh, as you guys have been saying. Um, Chiara, from a, either a private or a political public perspective, what are some of the changes that you sort of are cautiously hopeful about? Mm. I think the, I'm glad that you're bringing up the question of hope because I think not many people can live with Micah's version of pessimism. <laughs> I, I know my, my parents, my mom cannot. <laughs> um, she, she, my mom is someone who needs something to hope for, right? And so she has, puts her faith in science and she is hoping for a vaccine. I think the, the place I put my hope is in learning and growth. Um, and to see change as a teacher, which requires us to be constantly willing to reconsider what we believed before um, and to really to have the courage to think about 
what we believe in. So not just a blind faith that what I'm doing is right or that democracy is right or that democracy can handle this, but to really think about those things. How, how is that gonna happen? But I, I read kind of like a throwaway thing. Did you see Chris Cuomo on CNN last night? I didn't see it, but I read about him kind of, I guess, having a intimate, over, <laughs> I don't know if he was oversharing. The article made it seem like he, he was questioning his entire role and his job as an anchor and saying, I don't, I, this isn't worth it to me. I don't want to be what other people want me to be. I don't care about success by these standards that I used to care about. I just want to live my own life on my own terms. And I think there's nothing like a pandemic to make you confront your habits and your values and say, I have like, some people have more time now as parents, we have less time. What do I want to spend that time doing? Um, And being really thoughtful about that. I think those are changes that we are seeing that are going to bear fruit that is interesting and, and sweet. That sounds very hopeful and I agree with you, but it's easier to find hope in the domestic sphere and it's harder to find hope in the political sphere. Because one of the things that the virus has done is like, this idea of, is there going to be an election? Like in, in Israel, like the person who lost the election on March 3rd is still in power, right? So like, what if that happens here? Because in a certain sense, it kind of makes sense. Like, do we really want to change government in a pandemic? Because, you know, reasons, how would you do that transition? And also, is it fair to make people go out and vote? In a pan- so I think on a political level, it's very hard to be hopeful because it seems like what they're trying to do is prevent change. I don't know. I mean, I guess one way you could be hopeful is there's a little bit of this um, that Kara's been talking about to me about the, you know, Cuomo has formed this, governor of New York has formed this like regional alliance with the other. So maybe that's like a cool kind of like secession. Maybe secession is brewing in America and we can be hopeful about that. Maybe the federal government's going to, maybe the country's going to fracture. Maybe we, but, I, but I do see that there's like a, a, basically we're paralyzed on this question of how do we do politics in the sense of electoral politics voting under lockdown. You know, how do we do that? How are we going to prevent mail fraud? I mean, it's just, it's insane. And I think there's not a lot of time to decide that. And I think that the federal government, Trump, has no interest in figuring that out because he's in a much better position if we just don't figure it out. And then all of a sudden he's like, look, see, I have to stay in power. And then what do we do when we're in lockdown and there hasn't been an election in three weeks, four weeks, five weeks? I think it's really problematic. I mean, I don't know what we would do. I guess you would have to have I think that there's a there's a tipping point which could happen, which is that right now the paradigm is like the infected people are somehow less than the uninfected people in certain so they're like we want to keep them separate. But there could be a flipping that happens where it's like the infected people have more power because we think they have immunity, even though that might not be true. Maybe there'll be protests of people who are who believe themselves to be immune. We don't know if they are, but maybe they'll risk it in order to do protests. And then maybe the police won't confront them because the police... So there could be really strange things that happen, but I do think that there needs to be a kind of candid conversation about what if the election is canceled in November? Like, is this the end of democracy? And because like in China, the election being canceled doesn't matter. They only have one party anyways. So, but in America, it means everything. Um, And so I don't know, I'm having trouble figuring out how we could be, what the positive side of this is politically. It's very difficult. I think we're not, and Roger, I want to hear your thoughts about that provocation as well. I think we're not, I agree, the the signs for the short-term future are not positive and for the immediate future politically are not uh, hope-inspiring and that we're not well-served by deluding ourselves that uh, it would be anything less than a tooth-and-nail, bloody, painful fight to, to preserve democracy through this. I think one thing that can be helpful is, is extending our time frame for a, a long-term vision. We talked earlier about a global we, and there's been, if you think also in the big picture about the core features of democracy, because although I think we should be questioning democracy really hard right now, I also want to live in a democracy. 
um, the two core features of it are diversity and equality. And pandemics have historically reduced the wealth inequality that has been incredibly rampant. And so right now we're seeing that the pandemic is hitting hard in uh, underprivileged communities. But many of those privileges uh, that wealthy people used to maintain, such as having someone else do their cooking and cleaning, those are going to be the vectors for contagion. Those privileges are actually going to be a risk. Those privileges become a danger. Um, so I think that there's a possibility of seeing a, some equalization of some forces that could be positive. And then the other feature is diversity. Uh, democracies are known for their diversity, for their ability to maintain multiple plural points of view. I think it's possible that in basically in order to, to deal with corona, we will need a different attitude towards globality and towards diversity. Um, it's something that requires a global solution, requires countries and communities to work together in different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so we might have to rise to the challenge. We might not have a choice. Yeah, I mean, even like, you know, you can't just vaccinate one country. Like if you look at the the vaccine efforts that have eradicated, like the eradication of polio and stuff, these are huge global mobilizations, you know? So like, yeah, I mean, I think that it's also possible that one of the things that Occupy taught me literally is that humans are not as good as we think we are at doing things. Like we fail, we fail a lot at what we try to do. And I think that I have learned to see the potential of failure. And I think some people don't see that very much. They don't acknowledge that the chance of failure is very high. Even if it's possible for us to do these things, it, it, we could still fail, especially with a weak federal government, a weak leader. You know, We have a very weak leader in this country. There's also this other reality that could emerge where a lot of that old world internationalism does break down and that we are kind of confined to our neighborhoods or our state or just our general area, it's unclear what's going to happen. So I think it's, again, what I'm trying to say is I agree with Chiara that it's going to be like a global thing, but I think that how that manifests is going to be a lot different than that old global narrative of like airport connections between each city. You know, that was, that's what globalism meant, you know, six months ago. But globalism in the, in the pandemic might mean just cross-border Zoom calls, or I don't know what it means. It's really tricky. And there's a lot of pressure to reopen the borders to certain things like food. If the borders may keep being closed for food, it's going to cause major food problems. There's articles trickling out about this now. So there is a lot of pressure to figure out some way to restore international, not travel of people, but at least travel of goods. I mean, right now you see it in China. Most of China's cases are from people coming into the country. So this is a huge risk. And they're now warning Russia that that's how they got infected. So this this narrative of once you eradicate in your country, the danger is going to be people coming into your country is like both sides of the border are closing is what I'm talking about. It's not just, it's a, it's a mess. And so it's really tough to think about what they're going to do. What do you think, Roger? There have been a couple of things that have really struck me about the political aspects of this crisis. One is how certain people really got it right and certain people really got it wrong. So, you know, everyone talks about Trump who clearly got it wrong, but someone else who I think clearly got it wrong is Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, who up until the last day or two, was resisting closing the schools, was resisting, he kept going to his gym, mm-hmm. kept going out for his runs, and kept telling people, keep going out and doing things. Whereas someone who really got it right is London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, which has pretty much had almost nothing, even though they had early cases. And I mean, London Breed, who was basically shut down the city the day they had their first case, I think, or right around there. Mm-hmm. Whereas in New York, it waited weeks. You know, so I think one aspect of this is we're going to see leaders who succeeded, and I hope they become future leaders. 
you know, Cuomo made some mistakes early on, but clearly has rebounded and, and come to see where his mistakes were and, and taken it seriously. And I think uh, what you mentioned, Chiara, this idea that in, you've created this Western federal state between California, Oregon, and, and Washington state, and on the East Coast, these five states that have come together and joined like a, a block. These are new power structures that are emerging. Both of you have heard me talk a lot about Hannah Arendt and her love of decentralized power, and but even more than decentralized power, multiple power sources, that the way to prevent totalitarianism or authoritarianism is not constitutional limitations per se, but multiple power structures. And also that creates innovation and, and new ideas. And so one of the things that I see happening is certain governors or mayors getting it right and becoming more powerful and certain states becoming more powerful because they got it right. Where that will lead, I have no idea. I, I have no crystal ball, but I find it exciting. I find it exciting that the sort of one-dimensional, one-way street of power being sucked dry from localities and states and being brought up into uh, the central federal bureaucracy is finding some different avenues of resistance. I find that meaningful. I hope it continues, but I don't know where it will go. And I think in different states, it'll go in different directions. But I, I do take some solace in that. I don't know if that means anything to either of you, but for me, that's a hopeful result of this. Yeah, I think, I think that is true. And I think that one of those things, one of the ways that I've heard, I've read an article, they put it is like, there's a kind of social Darwinism that's happening, but it's happening not just across like money and privilege, but also who's your governor? Like things like you, oh, you lucked out. You have a strong local governor or whatever. You're, you're going to recover faster. You're going to be, do better. It is super interesting. Um, and it, and it, I think it is putting power into flux, but I think that it's still, there's still, even at the governor level, there's still a question, is there going to be elections? So like there is still this whole problem of sovereignty and the transfer of sovereignty in pandemic times. And maybe it'll be such that we just kind of take, like sovereignty just transfers without the resources. Because it seems like the federal government doesn't even have the, the masks. It's not like they have some huge amount of protective gear that allows them to have greater power anyways. But then there's the whole question of the military. Um, and the military has largely stayed out of it so far. They've done some stuff like bringing the hospital ships, but they haven't done as much as some countries' militaries have done. So I agree. I think that that is one fascinating thing is the, the way that power is changing right now. And I agree with you that we also, it's just impossible to understand what could happen because I think that if people are given a choice of should your governor be your president or your president be your president, at this point, at least a few states would say, let's go with my governor because that other guy doesn't even like understand anything. He doesn't even understand that this is, you know, not an influenza virus, you know, like he's just- He understands how to profit. And he's scaring people. Like one of the things I read very early on is um, about this Lancet article about the trauma of being in quarantine. And one of their advices is that Basically, everyone in quarantine is going to experience PTSD. This has been established by research into people who have been in quarantines, like in Ebola and SARS. But the thing they said was really important is you don't extend the deadline. So what's traumatic for people is you, if you tell them, you'll be out of quarantine in two weeks. And then two weeks later, you're like, another two weeks, another two weeks, another two weeks. That's where the trauma comes. And that's what Trump and, and a lot of governments are doing wrong right now. It would be much better for people's emotional well-being if you just said, it's indefinite for now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or it's nine months for now. So I know both of you guys have expressed some concern about the election, and I think that's a really important and interesting point. I know that in 1918, 
we had to have an election. And they had an election and people voted even though there was a pandemic. In 1918, there was an election. People risked getting infected to go and vote in the midst of World War I. And obviously there was a sense that it was more important to vote than risk getting sick. It strikes me that that's a huge claim or I assume there was a sense that democracy and the American project and self-government was worth risking one's life for. I wonder if that's something you guys think is a meaningful precedent for today. I mean, I guess I would feel like I wish I could believe that, but I also feel like there's a kind of deep unfairness to tell people, all right, risk your life to go vote and whoever wins the election is going to be your president. And some people, rightly so, shouldn't be forced to vote, right? I mean, some people are old. Some people could die if they get it. Some people are, you know, sick, immune compromised, whatever. They're scared. They don't want to do it. I just think that it could happen and maybe like future generations won't really remember it. But in, but in my only analysis would be, it seems deeply unfair. Um, and maybe that's just the way we proceed as a democracy is like, okay, we have to do it that way because we have no other alternative. And it was an unfair election, but we're moving forward because at least we get to keep the system that we have, um, which might be a better outcome than we didn't have an election. Now no one knows what the heck's going to happen. My thought is it's fair to say to people, you might have to risk something of yourself in order to participate in politics, but it's not fair to say to people, you have to risk other people's well-being uh, in order to participate in democracy, which is what it is to say you have to go out in the streets and physically vote. I think there's also the question of what a vote meant in 1918 versus what it means today with the growth of the lobbying and the growth of the two-party system to squeeze out alternative voices, whether voting is as meaningful of an act today as we've seen a, a decline in voting for important reasons in the United States, at least. But to go back to your earlier point about Arendt, she thinks that power comes from action, from from people acting in concert. That's one of the main sources of power. I think that by staying at home altogether, it's like the world's greatest sit-in. We are generating enormous power by all doing the same thing, which is sitting at home. And the question, where is that power going? What is going to be the outcome, result, direction of that power? Who's going to pick it up? I think right now we're choosing to continue to put our faith in, in New York. We're putting our faith in Cuomo. And continuing to believe in him and let let him be the beneficiary of that power that we're generating. But will we continue to do that only as long as he continues to be worthy of it? I think that makes a lot of sense. I think there's the power of staying home is a power that shows our faith, shockingly enough, somewhat shows our faith in our system. Uh, it shows a faith in the government, the experts, and those who say this is what we have to do. And so there is a kind of power being made visible. I, I don't know if that's the point you were making, Kiara, but I think there's something to that. Well, listen, I know you guys need to go. Uh, the domestic is intruding on us all. Um, thank you very much. Be well. And I hope to see you, I hope, before too long uh, in person, even though maybe you guys would prefer it online. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Roger. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Chiara Ricciadone and Micah White. If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more, all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the HANA Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.